Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The power of a biblical whatever. Learning to think and live in light of what is true. To be a person who thinks about whatever is honorable, it's the kind of attitude that doesn't get rattled easily. Justice is core to what God's gonna label a healthy attitude. Whatever is pure. This concept of without defect in light of our conduct and then our relationality. Whatever is lovely, look for it, guys, in legitimate places. When the Bible talks about the kind of good that makes up a commendable reputation. It talks about things like faithfulness, kindness, righteousness, and honor. Think in light of your reputation and whether it's commendable or not. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we uh, do thank you for your word and for your truth and how anything and everything your word says truly is life to our very souls and, and music. Lord, to our ears. I pray, God, that as we uh, look at this one verse, continuing this series, looking at one verse that nudges our attitude into eight positive, amazing directions, that, God, you would uh, continue to speak to our hearts and our minds. May we understand rightly what your word is saying. May we passionately, Lord, then live it out, even this coming week. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So it's time to audit the series that we have been in. If you have been with us at all in this series, you're going to like what we're about to do. If you haven't, this will be good review for you. And what I mean by audit is, audit is what I want you to do is think about the six attitudes that we've looked at so far in this series. And I'm going to walk you through them here in just a minute. And what I do, what I want you to notice is how vastly different these six attitudes are than what you would hear in the world today. Our world today talks a lot about attitude. In fact, if you listen to uh, you know, self-help, or if you read self-help books, if you listen to talk shows, if you uh, were to go to maybe a really good counselor, uh, you would hear a similar theme that what we're supposed to do in our attitude is think positive, that maybe think possibilities, and certainly think power or success. In other words, our world talks a lot about attitude today, and those are not necessarily bad things at all. I mean, it's good to think positive, it's good to think potential, it's good to think even power or success. But I find it fascinating that when God then talks to us about attitude, in this verse that we're in, Philippians 4.8, and gives us a list of the eight top things he wants to appear on our attitude, it's a very different list than the things that our culture talks about today. So let me show you what I mean. In this series so far, we have seen God tell us to think truth. Remember that? We started off with this, think truth. Both transcendent truth, which is the truth about him, as well as personal truth, which is the truth about us, and allow the two to intersect. That's the first thing God tells us about our attitude, to think in the realm of truth. And then he tells us to think non-reactionary, to be balanced in our thinking with wisdom, self-control, and steadiness, uh, all guiding us in our lives so that we don't react strongly to everything going on around us. And then he tells us to think justice. Remember that one? To right wrongs around us, discern, assess, and respond to injustices in our world. 
And then, as you're starting to maybe even breathe a little bit, God says, think holy or think pure. Uh, to live a Christ-like life in your behavior and in your relationships. And then, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we're to think love. But it's pleasurable love, the kind of love that gives us joy and pleasure in finding it in right places like safe people, solid activities, and a sound view of God. And then last week, think reputation, our reputation, so that in our attitude we are trying to live faithful and honest and high-integrity lives, honorable lives, so that our reputation is strong with those around us. I mean, these are the first six things that God has given us when it comes to our attitude. And I don't know about you, but it's such a different list than what our world looks at today. But as I looked at this list this week and did a quick audit of it, I thought this list in my mind is more robust. It's more profound. It's more life-altering. It's more soul-piercing than somebody just telling me to think positive, think potential, or even think power. And yet, here's the deal. Even as we come to our seventh attitude today, what we've called think excellence, at first glance, you might be tempted to think that this is right out of a motivational speaker's handbook, right? Because again, it seems to collate with this idea of thinking positive and thinking potential, think excellent. But what you're going to find today is that the way that the Bible presents this idea of excellence is profoundly different than the take that many have today. Here's how it's stated in Philippians 4.8. It says, finally, brothers, if there is any excellence, think about these things. If there is any excellence. Now, let's do a deep dive into this word, because I think you're about to find this very fascinating, uh, some things about this word excellence. When this word appeared about 2,500 years ago in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, it appeared within the Greco-Roman world, what you need to know is that this word in the original language was an extremely common word among the Greeks, and yet it was rarely ever used by the New Testament writers, and for good reason. I want to show you what I mean. This word translated excellent here in Philippians 4 verse 8 is the Greek word arete, and it pretty much means the way it's translated. It means excellent, or extremely good, or outstanding, or high achievement. As I mentioned earlier, the Greeks loved this word, and they used it all the time in all kinds of contexts. They overdosed on this word, and if you know anything about the Greek culture, you know why. It's because it was an era of human excellence, the Greek era was. So, for instance, they used this word to describe the excellence of achievement, whether it be the Olympic sports or the training of young athletes or the mastery of a particular field like business or math or science. They used it to describe personal endowments, like being really smart, strong, industrious, successful, even wealthy. Homer, in his writings, used it to describe manliness, somebody who was excellent in the art of war or excellent on the battlefield. The Greeks used this word arete to describe the gods. They even had a minor Greek deity named arete, who was the goddess of virtue or excellence. And then the Greek philosophers came along. You know them, Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato. And they hijacked this word, and they used it to describe virtuous traits like wisdom and courage and prudence and justice. 
And it was at this point that education and virtue became synonymous with excellence and success for the Greeks. Uh, In a very real sense, this word, arete, in the Greek culture that the New Testament was written in uh, was similar to the army's slogan back about a couple decades ago that I grew up with. I remember watching commercials with the army, and their slogan was, be all you can be. Do you guys remember that? Some of you do. You're, you're about my age. <laughs> and, and I can remember seeing the, the, the army's recruiting slogan, be all you can be. And as I thought of that this week, I thought, that's arete. That's the, the heart of this word is that you can be excellent, you can be outstanding, you can achieve anything that you set out to do. That's the way the Greeks use this word. And now that you get this, here's what I need you to further see and even wrestle with, because this is rich. And that is that when the writers of the New Testament, as well as the translators of the Old Testament into Greek, what we call the LXX, went to write the very words of God, inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit, they use this very common Greek word, arete, very sparsely and with great care. And we have to ask, as I did recently in my study, why? I mean, this word only appears five times in four verses in all of the New Testament. And it only appears six times in all of the Greek version of the Old Testament. So you only have 11 appearances. In 66 different books spanning a 1,500-year period of time, and we have to ask, what would cause such a sparse and careful use of such a common Greek word? There's a wonderful resource that New Testament scholars use that's considered the most exhaustive and comprehensive catalog of 2,300 New Testament words. It comes in 10 volumes. It includes the history behind these words, and it's called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, or Tidnit for short. Welcome to my world. And listen to what it says at one point in its rather long and scholarly article on arete. Follow along the logic here, and you'll start to see why. It says, to understand the few passages where arete is used in the New Testament, It is important that the Greek Old Testament applies the Greek concept of arete in a distinctive way. Even more significant, however, is the negative fact that the Greek Old Testament use is purely tentative and there is really no place for arete in the translation of the Old Testament. They go on to say, for in a biblical world in which man constantly saw himself morally responsible before a holy God, the Greek concept of virtue or human excellence could not finally fulfill its apparent promise. Though not irreligious, this word was far too anthropocentric and this worldly in orientation. What both the Old Testament and New Testament attest is not human achievements or merits, but the very acts of God. And so do you understand what they're suggesting here? They're suggesting that this Greek idea of human excellence, applying human power to accomplish human success is not all that compatible with the biblical idea of us as very fallen people in light of an incredibly holy God. Simply put, this Greek idea of excellence divorced from a biblical understanding of our fallen nature as human beings and the evident power of God and his goodness was not even worthy for them to write about. 
If they had done so, if they had used this word more than they did, it would have been considered paltry at best and heretical at worst. And so in the Greek version of the Old Testament, again, what we call the LXX, this word arete is only used ever of God to describe his excellence and splendor. Six times, it's never used of human beings. Isn't that interesting? I, I find that fascinating. The Greeks use this word all the time to describe human beings and their excellence. The Old Testament says we'll have none of that shenanigans. And then in the New Testament, where I mentioned it's only used four times in five verses, it's used twice in light of God, again, to describe his excellence and greatness. And then it is used twice to talk about Christians in two distinct contexts, calling us to a level of excellence in our lives, but with a decidedly different approach and a decidedly different posture. So in Philippians 4.8, we're called to think with excellence in mind. And then the second usage is in 2 Peter 1.5, where we are called, now don't miss this, to add to our faith excellence or virtue. But it's obviously an excellence that bounces off of our dependence on Almighty God. It bounces off and comes out of our faith and trust in God. So it's an excellence with an altogether different power. So please see this, guys. Far from being some humanistic striving to be all you can be, the Bible uses this very common Greek word, arete, only in light of God, who obviously is all that he can be. And when it does use it in light of us, it uses it only in the sense of us striving for excellence through the power and might of God as we trust in him. A very different approach to a very common Greek word, an approach that I would argue changes the very makeup of the DNA of our attitude once we dial into this. And so now, and only now, with this understanding, we're ready for our main point 20 minutes into our message based on the appearance of this word in Philippians 4.8, and here it is. And that is that as we are biblically guided, combined with being spirit-empowered, then and only then do we think excellence. Let me repeat that, because if you're interested in excellence today as a follower of Jesus, you want this to be your mantra. As we are biblically guided, as we are empowered by the Spirit, do we think excellence. So you and I, as followers of Almighty God and His Son Jesus, don't think excellence in some humanistic, I think I can, I think I can, little engine that could sort of way. No, we think excellence only and always in light of the indwelling Holy Spirit who empowers us to live rightly for God as guided even in our understanding of what excellence is by what's contained in the Scriptures. So as followers of Christ who strive for excellence in our lives, and we do, we do do have it on our radar, but it's a different kind of blip on our radar, one that's guided by the Word and empowered by the Spirit. So in the short time we have remaining, what does all of this look like? I mean, once we can latch on mentally to this idea that our excellence as followers of Jesus needs to be guided by the Scriptures and then empowered by the Spirit— What does that look like in daily living? And though there are tons of examples, 
because the Bible really does call us to a level of excellence in our lives. I want to give you three rather quick examples just to show you how this template works in our lives if you dare to impose it Monday through Saturday in your daily living. First example would be the marketplace. The marketplace. In Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, we find God calling his followers to a high level of excellence in the marketplace, in their vocational lives. So whether you're a business owner or a teacher or a homemaker, a doctor, a student, a lawyer, a line worker, a service provider, doesn't matter. You're called to a level of excellence in your life. And here is what it says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, some of us have heard this passage before. In fact, we've read it a lot, and some of you business people might even have this on your office wall because it's a very common passage that's pointed directly at our vocational lives. But with the understanding that we have now of excellence that needs to be biblically guided and empowered by His Spirit, I want you to notice very clearly what this passage does now under that kind of grid. First, it tells us, if you're reading closely here, that our motivation for excellence in the marketplace comes from where? To serve Jesus. Now think about that, guys. That means your motivation is not to please another human being or even to please a corporation or a government institution or a nonprofit entity like I work for or even to please ourselves. The number one motivation we need to have in our daily work, attitudinally it's telling us here, is to serve Jesus. So the entire locus of operation is now shifted because the Bible has guided us in what it means to have a mindset of serving the Lord in our work. And the reason that this is so is because of the second thing this passage tells us, and that is that the goal or focus now of excellent work for believers in the marketplace is to please God, who will someday give us a reward most likely in eternity. That seems to be the context here, though it could be a blessing this side of heaven. And the reward, don't miss this, is for our faithful service to him, even in and through our everyday mundane work. Now that's rich. So if you're making photocopies, you're supposed to make really good photocopies, as if serving Jesus, because you just might get a reward, think about this, for making photocopies in heaven. That's what the Bible says here, that when we work, we work as unto the Lord, and in doing so, he says he's going to reward us because the goal and purpose is to please him in our work. And again, some of you don't see it like that. Your attitude isn't when you're working at at work as if you're working for the Lord and trying to please Him, but that's what excellence is about here. This is how the Bible guides you in to a right understanding of excellence in the marketplace. It has everything to do with God. So I think that famous story uh, in the movie Chariots of Fire with Eric Little, some of you saw that movie years ago. Now Eric Little, who was an Olympic runner who refused to run on the Sabbath on Sunday, and that's what the movie was about, uh, would eventually resolve or work through that issue, went on to serve in World War II. I think he died in World War II as a missionary. And, and at one point in the movie, he makes probably the key comment in the whole movie when he says this. He says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that line. 
He's equating something as simple as running and him being a really good runner with the pleasure of God and that he would run for God and that when he ran for God, he sensed God's pleasure. Let me ask you, do you have that mindset at work? (laughs) Is that how you view the stuff that you're doing? The Bible says if you want to have a level of excellence, that's the way that you need to see it. And then, notice thirdly, this passage says that because of all of this, our altered motivation to serve God and not others, combined with our new goal to please Him and find our reward in Him, that we now approach our marketplace work with a totally different kind of energy. Did you catch it? It says, work heartily as for the Lord. So the connotation being, we're now uh, empowered by our faith and trust in Him and the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us as we strive for excellence at work. So add it all up. The striving for excellence in the marketplace for a believer is that you now have a new motivation, you're working for God, not man, a new focus and goal, his pleasure and your reward, and a new energy and power, you're working heartily as in the power of the Spirit. So it's definitely excellence that God is after here. Make no mistake about that, guys. But it's an excellence with a subtly different twist on it. Don't miss this. As you're guided by the scriptures in your understanding of excellence and then empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that is why they were so leery of using this Greek word arete because they didn't want it to be misunderstood. This is not a humanistic pursuit. This is a godly pursuit. This, you're going to see in a minute here, touches every area of our lives, including our work. I love how Martin Luther King Jr. said it years ago. This is great. When he was speaking to a group of young people in a public school just about six months before his assassination, he said to them, if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. I don't know about you. I read that, I want to go out and sweep streets. I really do. Because heaven is watching And heaven wants to empower even that kind of mundane activity. And so we think excellence with whatever we're doing. We work heartily as unto the Lord. And that's just one example of the marketplace. And my only reason for giving you that example is to show you that this book guides you into a right understanding of excellence and then even shows you how to be empowered by the Spirit. Now, second example that's going to hit right to your daily life is relationships. I don't think there's one of us here today who doesn't want excellence in our relationships with our kids, our spouse, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our fellow church people. Who doesn't want that? But have you ever wrestled with this question? How do you attain excellence in a relationship? I've wrestled with that for years because I'm married. I've wrestled with that for years because I have to work with pastors, which is not always easy. How in the world do you attain a level of excellence in something as soft and nebulous and subjective as a relationship? They don't send you to school for this stuff. Have you ever noticed that? And so you could go to therapy, and I did that for a couple of years, and some of you are glad for that, and that helped, but it didn't change everything. I've read self-help books over the years. 
I've even sometimes on channel surfing just paused for about 10 minutes on Ellen to see if maybe there'd be some help there. Or Oprah or Dr. Phil, because I'm told by all the ladies in our church that they really help them relationally, and I, I get that. And so between self-help books and Ellen and Oprah and Dr. Phil and therapy, I've been helped somewhat in my relationships. I really have. I'm not down on those. Uh, but let's talk for a second about what your excellence in relationships would look like if you were biblically guided and empowered by the Spirit. And many of you don't know this, but the Bible really is a handbook on how to relate well. It is. First and foremost, how to relate well with Almighty God. But then there are thousands of passages on how to relate well with each other. Let me just show you one and what would happen if you dared to apply this one to your relational base. Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. I want you to imagine what would happen to your relationships if you really and truly applied this verse to your life with excellence. Uh, start at the end of this verse, which is actually the starting point all, uh, of it all. Imagine if you really believed and have gotten in touch with the fact that God and Christ has forgiven you. Imagine that. Imagine if every day you woke up and you truly believed that every one of your sins, past, present, and the future ones that you're going to commit that day, were completely covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. All of it, fully. No half measures at all when it comes to God's forgiveness. Say, for the sake of argument, that you agreed with the psalmist when he says that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he thrown my transgressions from me. Imagine if you had a totally new lease on life based upon God's forgiveness, and watch this, that new lease on life would cause you then to submit fully to him your very life, which is what we call the lordship of Christ which, by the way, is how it's supposed to work, that once you realize how much he has forgiven you, the extent of his grace in your life, you are to submit to his lordship each moment of each day. And, and so you would realize that your life really is his. It's a quote I put in your outline by C.S. Lewis when he says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. No half measures are any good. Imagine if that was your mantra and that you believe that. So you're fully forgiven and you're fully submitted, or at least as best you can, each day. And now from this, according to Ephesians 4, here then is how you would approach your relationships with excellence. You do three things every day. You would be as kind as you could be. You would monitor your heart each moment to make sure it is tender to those around you, and you'd be really good at forgiveness. Now I ask you, what would be the makeup of your relationships if those were the three things you led with every day? I'm telling you, there would be no stopping you. If you were seen by those around you as the most kind person in their sphere of influence and the most tender-hearted person in their sphere of influence and even the most forgiving person, forgiveness means to let it go. If you actually did let go wrongs committed against you, I can promise you right now, without even knowing anything about your life, I promise you that everybody would want to be with you. Amen? They would. I promise you that people would feel safe with you. I promise you that they would even want to listen to you as you would listen to them. And I promise you, get this, that they, God would even use you to, pr to produce profound life change in their lives through your love. Isn't that interesting?
And the reason I can so categorically promise this to you guys is because, again, when I do an audit on how I have changed as a Christ follower over the last 34 years of knowing Jesus, um, it has always come, almost always, through people in my lives that had these relational traits. People that didn't abandon me when I was hurting, but people that were kind and tenderhearted, truthful and forgiving. Those are the people that God has used to bring life change in my life. It really is true when the scriptures tell us that love is the great healer, that love is the most powerful thing in God's hands to change us, his love for us and then our love for each other. That really is the oil that makes relationships run well. And so again, excellence in relationships, the scriptures guide us into very, very clearly. Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as, Christ in, just as Christ has forgiven you. And then we're empowered by his Holy Spirit to be able to do the things that God asks us to do. And then lastly, a third example, and then I'm going to have you run with this in your own life because you're going to start applying this template, this grid all over your life. But a third example would be character. Again, many of us want to have a better character in our lives. We want to be men and women of character. And again, don't miss this, guys. Our world talks about character all the time. I have two shelves of leadership books in my library here at my church office, and many of them are secular books on leadership. And guess what? Contrary to popular opinion, most of them talk about character. Because even our secular world realizes that without character, you're not going to really be able to lead well or even have uh, success in your life. I mean, it depends upon character. But, but when we look to the Bible, here's what it says about character. It says in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 8, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Now, pause right there. That's the uh, other occurrence of arete as applied to human beings in the New Testament. So some would translate that excellence. So supplement your faith with excellence and excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's for a whole nother series. I should do like an eight-week series on this someday, shouldn't I? That would be fun, at least for me. But it's for a whole nother series. But, but guess what, guys? There's your recipe as the Bible guides you into a right understanding of character. The character is a bunch of qualities that you knit into the fabric of your lives with every decision, every emotion, every thought, each and every day as you focus on these things and say my life is going to be one of faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection all leading to this idea of love because that's what's going to give me the kind of character that will allow me to be usable and moldable in the hands of God and so we have our definition of character there and then if you're like me you go but who can live like that and what's God's answer you can empowered by his Holy Spirit who lives in you and is all about changing you into the image of Christ as you submit to him, you can. And before you know it, there's your recipe for excellence as guided by the scriptures into a right understanding of what excellence looks like even with character and then empowered by his Holy Spirit, you can be excellent. But it's a lot different 
than this Greek understanding of be all you can be and the little engine that could and I think I can and I think I can and click in your heels in order to get back to Oz. None of that is real. None of that is the kind of recipe for excellence that will truly deliver in your life. God's Word and His Spirit are. And so here's the deal. This same template for excellence that we've looked at here today, because we're wrapping this thing up in the next five minutes, being biblically guided and spirit-empowered, now get this, applies to every area now of your life. Think of your parenting, your finances, your grandparenting, your view of health. Think men and women of your business ethics, doctors of your medical ethics. Think of your view of retirement. Did you know that the Bible says something about every one of those topics I just mentioned? Every one of them. The Bible has pointed, clear, almost coming out of left field things to say about every single one of those areas that are livable and workable and so as biblically guided and then empowered by the Spirit because get this, the Bible usually calls us to a higher level than our world does, duh. Uh, And so we need the Spirit in order to really live this stuff as you're biblically guided in every one of those areas and empowered by the Spirit, you and I think excellence. And like the biblical writers, we take this word excellent with care and thoughtfulness, and yet we are excellent. We want to be excellent as we are guided by His Spirit and as we are informed by His Word. I can't wait to see how, as a result of this series, you and me, our attitudes change. And out of this one, I can't wait to see how you and I truly start to model for a world what excellence looks like as we're guided by the Word and empowered by His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you that you love us enough to always tell us the truth, but Lord, tell it to us in a way that is clear and understandable, and certainly, Lord, if we're willing to take you at your Word, livable. And so I pray, God, that as we each give cogent thought to our lives today on what excellence might look at, as we've seen today in marketplace settings or in our relationship base or even in our character. And now, Lord, exploding that to so many other areas of our very lives. I pray, God, that you would help each one of us to be a man or a woman who thinks arete, but in a very different way than the world around us would. God, thank you for this list of attitudes that you've given us here. We pray, God, as we wrap this series up next week, and think about whatever is worthy of praise, that, God, we would end this series on a glorious note as we then go and apply these eight attitudes over our lifetime into our very lives. God, we do this all to give you glory and to give you praise. Our lives, we realize, are to be hidden in you, hidden in Christ, and that, Lord, we exist to bring you praise and bring you glory and to find our joy and satisfaction in that. And so it's to that end that we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.